right, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, so if you find that place, uh, we'll read in just a moment. I'd like to have a word of prayer first, and we'll ask God's blessing. Oh, Father in heaven, as we come to this particular day, we know that it's a special day. Lord's Day is always a special day. It's a day that you set apart. You ask us to give this day to you so that we may worship, so that we may rest. And also, Lord, even that we may have a testimony with those around us of those holy habits that are part of the life of a believer. And we pray you'll set this day apart. We know you already have, but our prayer is that you'll do that in a special sense and that we will enjoy your blessing not only in our Sunday school hour, uh, but also in the services to follow. We thank you for the Pollocks, for the time yesterday, uh, for the good acquitting of themselves that they've given. And we would just pray, Father, as we listen to the Word of God today, whether it's in our Sunday school format or in one of our worship services, that you will bless us, that you will open our hearts. We confess, Lord, that as we come to you, we need your wisdom, your guidance. What we crave more than anything is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and not that of a man, although we are grateful that you use us, that you give us opportunities. Hide us behind the cross, we pray today, all of us who serve and minister in this place in any capacity, and uh, forgive us for our sins, cleanse us, give us the presence and fullness of the Spirit of God to do your bidding uh, at, at community here today, and we'll thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, let me direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin reading a, a passage today, beginning verse number 11, and we'll be reading down through verse 17. Um, I really uh, toyed with the idea of trying to finish this chapter today because at some point we need to double up if we're going to finish, and uh, I chickened out, but anyway, we'll figure out <laughs> what we're going to do. It's just some of these passages, they have some incredible verses in them, and uh, I've commented on this to you before. I apologize. We can't always talk about everything, and if I don't talk about something you were really hoping to hear a comment on, I apologize for that. Uh, I think I have the greater temptation because I look at those things, I've studied those things, uh, generally at least, I have something to say, um, I hope it's worth hearing. But in any respect, um, we can't do it all, so we have to keep moving with this. And that being said, um, well, let's look at verse 11 and we'll read our passage. We, we have come to something of a, our first little milestone in this today in the sense that we uh, We've been looking at this idea of Christ is sufficient in suffering, and first of all, his salvation, and to, to, to develop that, to sort of uh, document that thesis, as it were, as a way of looking at the book. We've talked about the fact that, first of all, because his salvation sustains us now, we've completed that section now, and we're headed into the second set, uh, section of the book, the longest stretch that we're going to go in this, where you notice here on your outline and there on the screen, um, Christ is sufficient in suffering because we, his example guides us. And so let's read these verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, or the King James uses the word lusts, of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to governors as supreme, I'm sorry, uh, to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So today, our fourth lesson, and we're going to be looking at the Christian as a citizen. So if we're talking about the idea that Christ is our sufficiency in suffering, and then developing that in this section with with the thought that his example guides us, where are we coming up with that as a keynote thought here? And I would direct your attention as kind of a key verse to uh, chapter 2 and verse 21, where you'll certainly find that outlined. Look at this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And these are the important words next. Leaving Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ's example we have to guide us. Now, we could look at some other verses. I, I, I mentioned, use the word secondarily, because this word here, example, is in verse 21, but this is not the first time, or, and this will, this will not be the last time, that, that, that Christ's suffering is held up to us, and uh, by inference is an example to us. So also notice uh, chapter 3, verse 18, a little bit later in the chapter, This is quite a weighty verse. We'll get to it in due course. But it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, nothing is said about an example, but you'll notice what it says next. The righteous for the unrighteous. So right away you have something here going on that helps us, and it it actually relates to what is being discussed in today's passage, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may behold your good conversation or manner of life. Well, this is ultimately modeled in Christ because Christ did no sin. Christ's example was perfect. Christ was righteous, but yet he was reviled, and yet he, was, he suffered as an evildoer. And so we have that as an example. Um, we could also go to verse number 1 of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. So, again, not the word example, but certainly the idea is brought out there. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Uh, Suffering is going to come. Don't stand in line for it. You don't have to look for trouble. It will find you. Um, So, but when it does, then we certainly need what we have here in the Word of God to help us uh, in all of those things. So, those are some key verses to look at as as we progress through this. And you're going to find out that the chief exhortation, not the only one, but the thing that keeps coming up in this passage, what exhortation is given to us in this type of a context, and it is that we be subject. So, again, several verses here. Look at verse 13, which we read a moment ago. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We drop down to verse number 18 uh, in the same chapter. Look at it again. Servants, be subject to your masters. So, there that is. Uh, That concept is, again, chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject. So there there is the same terminology. Also, verse 5, do not let your adorning... I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. That's 3. For this is how the holy women, verse 5, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting or being in subjection to their own husbands. So you'll find this coming up again and again. And it's not the only thing that's said, but it is a key thing that's said. 
And I would pause for just a moment to ask you to think about this a little bit because you know something, it doesn't really matter. I, I recognize this is a class largely of adults. Um, we may have some young adults, but uh, we don't have any young people. But you know, we're in the habit, I think, sometimes of thinking that, well, you know, young people really struggle with this idea of being subject to authority. No, people struggle with this idea of being subject to authority. And uh, it helps a little bit when you're young if you learn some of these lessons uh, because here's the, here's the whole point that we really need to understand. Authority is woven into the very fabric of life. Authority comes from God, and he delegates certain authority to certain human institutions. So uh, paramount, and before us today in our passage, is government. That's a, that's a prime example of this. By the way, let me say it now in case I forget it later. Uh, Paul's treatment of this uh, same subject that we're looking at today is also a, 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 a quite developed, uh, his passage for this is in Romans 13. I, I'm sure many of you would know that. We may or may not refer over there, but till you put together Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, you have a pretty good representation of what the Bible, uh, there's authority in the home. There's authority in the church. There's authority everywhere you go. There's authority at school. If you're a young person, you're going to school. You know, you, we all laugh about the proverbial example of the kid that said, you know, I'm really sick of these rules at home. I'm going to join the Marines. <laughs> and uh, yeah, right. So they will, they will enlighten you about authority when you, when you make that decision. But authority is all around us. And, it, you know, the problem is since we have a fallen nature, anybody here not have a fallen nature? <laughs> since we have a fallen nature, what is the very nature of this fallen human nature, summarized quite well by what it says in Isaiah, all we like, like sheep have gone astray. What have we done? Turned everyone to his own way. That's what we do. That comes by nature to us. So submission to authority isn't always easy, and that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit more here today. So there are going to be eight areas as we go through this section, and you'll notice that what I did in the outline for today is I, I provided you not the words or not the titles, I guess. Titles would be the best. Like today we're using the title for the first one, The Christian is a Citizen. And in that earlier outline where I had the overview of the book, the roadmap of the book for you, I used those titles. Today what I've done is to provide, in some cases, different words because what I'm attempting to do is get to give you a little color here a little idea of maybe what we're going to be looking at. And uh, so we're talking today about civic life, but when we get to the next section, we're going to be talking about employment. And the reason that we're going to be talking about employment is in the ancient world, there, there was the institution of slavery. Um, servants is how the ESV sees fit to translate this, as I believe the King James uses the same, uh, the same translation servants, but, but we all understand that it was more than sort of just the genteel concept of a servant that sometimes we think about when we have that translation, but we don't have that today. I mean, it's in the world, but we don't have it here. And so what we do have is employment, and that's the best way, I think, for us to look at this. We certainly do still have marriage, although it seems to be endangered. We most certainly have church life, we are certainly living in the world, though we aren't of the world. We most certainly have to combat the flesh. That's exactly what Peter is getting at in verse 11. I beseech you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
more developed in that section, 4, 1 to 6. Charity, um, or the word love. Charity is, is not a bad word to use because um, it tends to focus on the outward good works, uh, but we understand what underlies that, the, the notion of love, agape love. And then, of course, trials. Um, something else that comes up in our passage for today, and having said this, we'll, we'll get right into this section on the Christian as a, as a citizen. Um, so today in our reading, we encountered the word suffer for the kind of the first time. And you might have been wondering, are we ever going to see this? Are we ever going to see this? Well, yes, we, we certainly are. Our hint that this is what's coming, our hint is in chapter 1, verse 6. Earlier we read about, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So trials come in all iterations, and it seems like so does suffering, but when it gets more specific as we get into the book, then we realize that, that, that suffering is what's really on the front burner because of what's coming right down the road with Nero and where the Christians lived and, and all of that type of thing and what was going on uh, in, in their daily lives. And I tell you folks, to me, um, talking about this and, and thinking about a book like First Peter is, is so relevant because it, suffering is all around us. There's absolutely no question about that. You don't have to live in a communist country or, or Iran or one of those places uh, to be thinking about other forms of suffering because, as we said before, it comes in so many different types of, of, of ways that suffering can come to us. But I think you'd have to be a little naive. I, I really worry about my, my grandchildren and my children because I struggle with things that we're seeing in our country now and that we're seeing to the north of us in Canada and other places in the world, I, if you had asked me 25 years ago, was that going to happen, I, I would have thought, eh, I don't know. But now we're seeing this stuff, and we're seeing churches locked up, and we're seeing Christians vilified, and we've come so far from the types of values that, I'm not getting to the argument of whether America is a Christian nation or was a Christian nation, but certainly everyone, I think, agrees with the fact that our Founding values were Judeo-Christian in nature, and um, our land has certainly been blessed with all kinds of liberty and freedom to preach the gospel, and people who have done so over the years. We've had the awakenings, we've had revivals, we've had some of the greats of church history in the 17th, uh, particularly the 18th, 19th century, even into the early 20th century. Um, so we've been really blessed, but that's not where we are now. And where we're moving is in a, a frightful, personally, I think, direction, and I'm, I'm really glad that we have First Peter to kind of give us these points. All right, let's talk about this idea of where we are today. So I'm going to give you a little thought before I jump into the, what's, what's there in this first slide for us. Um, when we're looking at this passage, verse 11 down through verse 17, I think there's a way that you can you can actually outline this or look at this if you want to. I'll throw it out in case you, you find it beneficial. But you may notice that um, a lot of times in outlining, I know I like to use this, I, there's an introduction, then there's the main body of what you're going to talk about, which I use the word discussion for. 
Um, I use that in all my stuff, so it doesn't really matter what context it is, whether it's a Sunday school lesson or a sermon or whatever. It's just how I outline. And then you get to a conclusion, and all of those things are, are standard parts of, of, of what you tend to do when you... Th this passage really fits that mold very, very well, because you could look at verses 11 and 12 as an introduction. I'm not saying a lot about those verses today, but if you look, he, he reaches out. This is sort of a, a, a pastoral type of a touch by calling people beloved. So this, this, is an, this is an attempt to reach the heart. And he says, I urge you, I exhort you. <clears throat> this is kind of an introduction to the main body now. As sojourners and exiles. So he's picking up on two terms that we've already seen. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, he said to the elect exiles. So he's introduced that term for us already. Then in chapter 1, verse 17, you have uh, this again, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And I mentioned when we were in that passage that I wish the ESV had been consistent with this because they translate exile here, which this is actually the word they translate sojourner in verse 11. So had they been consistent, we would have seen the two different English words already coming up. But the two words that underlie this in the original have already come up. It's just that it's translated exile both instances, but then when they get to verse 11, they use sojourners and exiles. Well, we always have to remember, so this is by way of introduction, beloved, we have to remember that this world isn't our home. Not anymore, because we've been born again, our citizenship is in heaven, so we can't really think it strange when we find the world going against us, because that's exactly what our former manner of life and thinking was. But here's the thing. Militating against all Christian exhortation isn't just the world. It's not just the fact that we, this world is no friend to grace. It's the fact that we have the enemy within as well. And this is what he's talking about when he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We've got problems with the old man. And this is what James is talking about. Um, we have a spiritual warfare going on, a spiritual conflict, a spiritual struggle. James says in verse four, or or verse one of chapter four, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So I'm, I'm actually kind of harking back to what I said at the beginning. We have our own struggles with authority. And we have our own struggles with ourselves. And so he's reaching out. He reminds us of our status here as exiles and as uh, sojourners. He reminds us of the spiritual warfare that's going on and that we've got to be careful in this. And that the way to do this is to keep on keeping ourselves away from, abstain. That's not a bad word. Uh, you find that translation of that term in the original a number of times. Abstain. Keep on holding these things away from yourself or yourself away from these things. It's the, present in, it's the present tense here. So this is an ongoing thing. Every day when you get up, we have these struggles and we have to, to, to watch out and to avoid the, the, the landmines that are a part of living in this world as strangers and sojourners. And then what, what is he going to get to kind of his point now? People are watching. You keep your conduct 
among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? Thursday? <laughs> well, it, it, was, it was in our ministry, but that's, uh, that's not really what he's getting at here. So when you have a divine visitation in the Bible, it's either to manifest grace or to bring judgment. And people interpret this both ways. I don't know that we have to solve this here this morning. Uh, if you look at Peter's usage, it might be that you have some small argument in favor of the idea of grace. In other words, the idea that at some point, some of these people very well may, be, may become Christians as a result of seeing the difference in you, and that's well worth keeping in mind as a motivation. Why I say this is because over in uh, Acts chapter 15, where you have the Jerusalem Council going on, did I say verse 17? I don't think I meant that. It's, it's uh, chapter 15, uh, and it's verse, well, I'll read verse 13, it's verse 14. Um, so James is going to start talking now, and he says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me, Simeon, that's Peter, that's, that's our author, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, so there's this, this idea in Peter, that's the point. How does Peter use this? It's not that he could not have used it in the other sense, but here he does use it in the sense of grace. God at first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Well, so here's the point. When, when, when people ultimately come to Christ, they look back and they see God's grace in us and they see that, that it was God who enabled us, burdened us to be different, and then enabled us to live that way, the way that the Bible uh, enjoins us in their, in their midst, again, as strangers and sojourners. But as I say here, once you start talking about this idea of obeying the authorities, everybody's got all kinds of ideas, right? And there are all kinds of questions that come up. So I've kind of handled this in a, in a somewhat practical way today. Maybe you'll disagree with something. That's, that's OK. It's still a free country, still. Uh, but I want to talk about some things that it doesn't mean and try to document this from the text. So first of all, I would point out, because I think here's a, here's a tendency that we have to watch for. Doesn't mean you can overlook what we would regard as petty officials or petty things, of which there are multitudes, believe me. Um, and it seems like the longer you live, the more there are. Everybody is out to ban something, or there's always some, oh well, get off on that. But the reason I say this is look at the text, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Perfectly legitimate translation. It is kind of interesting, and there's back and forth about this. But it is kind of interesting that the word translated institution here in the original is the word creation. So every human creation, but some of the back and forth is that, that in Biblical Greek, this is, is how it's argued. The creation tends to be used, uh, creation tends to be used not of human things, but of what God has created. Uh, I don't care to get involved in that argument. Um, I, I think that it sort of is a little beside the point to say, well, it's only what God ordains. Because God ordains in the ultimate sense, God ordains everything. So 
if you're looking to give yourself an out by saying, well, all right, there's three divine institutions, everything outside of that I'm not under. Uh, that's a little bit of a, I think you're kind of weaseling. <laughs> my personal thought, but I don't mean to offend. So I, I'm not really, don't get too whacked out on this. In fact, if you take it in the other direction of a human creation, then it's sort of the idea is whatever they come up with. And man, do they come up with some doozies, right? Which really puts us in a bind. Especially when these people sit on school boards and other, you know, I'm talking about the petty ones now, you know. But these people, um, you read, I don't know if you read, I have to be careful here. I don't know if you read this week about the editorial that was, it was an op-ed that was published in, in Pennsylvania in the York, whatever the newspaper there is, but it was uh, a school board member. And he was just ranting against these parents that want to have some ownership in what the school board's doing and want to have some say about their children. And in this rant, he just went on and on about, it don't work for you. And it, I don't know if anybody saw it, it but it, you know, I, I looked at it. You know, it, it caught my attention. It was from York. And so I, I sort of looked into it. But it's when you're dealing with people like that, how easy is it to have a respectful, submissive attitude? Not easy. So you can't just rule out those types of people, even though there's some doozies out there. And because he says here in the text, whether it's the emperor as supreme, and the, literally behind the word emperor, it's king, but in then it was Caesar, the emperor. So King James uses king, but then England had a king. So you can see where the translations come from. It is the word basileus in Greek. It is the word for king. So whether it's the, all the way at this top end of the spectrum, the emperor is supreme, Caesar is lord, or you come down the rung and he says governors. And you know, right away we think of you know, the governor of our state. That's the highest ranking executive position in the state. That'd be like the president in the union. But, so, but you know, you had, it wasn't necessarily quite that way in the Roman world, although I suppose you'd say, well, Pilate, he was the governor, was a procurator is, is literally the idea. So he would have been the head cheese, I suppose you could say, in Palestine. But Paul had dealings, if you think about it, Paul had dealings with a lot of different people. Um, so in the book of Acts, can you name me any? Give me, a, give, me, give me somebody besides Pilate in the book of Acts. Anybody? Two start with F. Felix. Another starts with F. Festus. In Corinth, Paul dealt with a man, his first letter was G, Gallio. These people are all around, right? And so I think what Peter's attempting to do is give us a bit of a spectrum. You have from A to Z, so to speak, here, but he also says every ordinance. So how are you going to let yourself out by just excusing? And I... <sighs> You can get yourself in a lot of trouble with these things. But um, I don't know what you think about the speed limit, but I think that's one of the most practical, everyday things that's out there that's difficult. Hopefully every day you don't come across this, somebody like this York School Board member. But every day you do have that, and <laughs> uh, I don't know. 
what do you tell the officer? What, I mean, you, you have your excuse already ready? Because they've heard them all. And you go on the internet and find lists of these things, and they're, they're, they're actually quite humorous that people come up with. But you're always having, this is what I'm working towards here, you're always having to work towards thinking about your testimony. You're better off if you've gotten pulled over, and he didn't just pull you over for one or two miles over. If he pulled you, in Pennsylvania it was always six. If you were more than six, they'd, they'd pull you over. We had several state troopers in our church, and I always liked the way one of them told me. He said, you know, he said, I'm out there along the side of the road, 322, Dave. And he said, I got people going by me. He said, I don't even care about the ones that are going 71, speed limit 65. He said, I got them blowing by me 80 and 85 all day long. Those are the ones that I'm interested in. I like that. Because I didn't usually have to worry about being that much over. Maybe passing somebody or something, but anyway. Yeah, I lived in Pennsylvania for 31 years. Never pulled over by a police officer in Pennsylvania. Stopped once at a, one of those sobriety checks. Yeah, I got out of it. It was kind of interesting, you know, what they do in those things. You know, you guys flashlight looking in your eyes to, and looking around the car a little bit. And, well, Mr. Coleman, where are you headed? About another mile, I'm trying to get home. Well, you have a good day. Thank you, officer. And boogie down the road. They got to stop everybody. But I never, it, did I deserve to a few times? Uh-huh. You know, so the Lord watched over me in those instances, and I was so glad that I never got pulled over by a Pennsylvania State Trooper. I think that's sometimes difficult, though, especially when, I can't say the same for Illinois. We were in Illinois four years, and there was a shortcut through a neighborhood. That's the worst kind. They'll get you there. And I didn't even know what the speed limit was on the street, and it was 25. Those are the, I, I, I used to tell people, my car doesn't even idle at 25. And this policeman, were you, you were with me, weren't you? The policeman pulled me over. We were on our way to work. And uh, he gave me a ticket, too. I only had three in my life. He pulled me over, and I, what was I going to say? You're better off just selling them. Sorry, officer, I wasn't watching. Come up with something, but don't come up with the, the normal. And uh, so, man alive, you know, when I, when I had the court hearing, I went down there and I had, I had reams of stuff. I was ready. I was going to show the judge, you know, well, this is where I came on this street and where the officer was. There was no speed limit sign posted and all this stuff, and I didn't know. And he called me up there before the, the Bema. You know, he's up there on the raised platform, and he says, well, he says, uh, how long you lived in Illinois, I told him. He said, when's the last time you had a speeding ticket, and I told him. He said, court supervision, and was it 50 or $100, or whatever, it, it, he gave me a break. So I didn't say another word. I put my papers away, counted my blessings, and went home. 
but you know there's this stuff out here is a challenge for us sometimes but this is what Peter is is getting at here so secondly it doesn't mean we can uh, where are we yeah secondly it doesn't mean that we can disobey God in the process and I think this one's self-evident I won't take as long with this but you'll notice what the text says for first place in this verse it says that what we're doing we're doing for the Lord's sake it doesn't make much sense to say well I have to do this because Someone says I have to do this, but in the process I'm disobeying God when I'm supposed to be doing it, submitting for the Lord's sake. That doesn't, that doesn't seem to quite add up. He also notices in verse 15, or says in verse 15 that for this is the will of God. So you really don't think God wants you to do something contrary to his will so that you can say that you obeyed so-and-so, right? You have a, it doesn't really follow very well, so I think we can rule this out, not to mention Peter's own example, which we're, we're intimately familiar with, Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. You must judge, Acts 4.19, on into chapter 5. Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them saying, hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, but here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There it is. This is what Peter says, and the Bible is certainly consistent with itself in this respect. Um, so we also have, and I mentioned you can use the idea of an introduction in verses 11 and 12. You get to verses 13 through 16. You have the main body or discussion. And then you have a, almost like a summary conclusion in verse 14, where it summarizes, here's your four responsibilities in respect to people out there. What does it say? Honor everyone. So we'll just talk briefly about the verse right now. What, you know, if you're not a Christian, and you don't recognize that everyone is a, a creation of God and made in God's image, you don't have the moral foundation to obey that. And that's why we have so much disrespect in our society today. You know that? Because we don't believe that any longer. And as a Christian, I have to keep pumping out the tendencies of the old man and keep remembering that, you know, the people that I'm in contact with, I'm not at liberty to disrespect them even if that's my first tendency in the flesh because they're made in the image of God, and I have to have respect for my fellow man if I'm going to have the kind of testimony that I need to have. So we owe respect to everyone um, on in the verse, and so we owe this to these situations as well. But he says, love the brotherhood, so I owe love to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I owe reverence to God, and I owe regard to the emperor. That's been hard for me at times across the years. Have you struggled with that? Or am I the only one? I mean, I remember being in Israel in 19... When Jimmy Carter was president, I was in Israel, and I was never a Carter fan. Sorry if I need to step on your toes, but... Never was. 
I was okay with, as an American, talking to my fellow Americans about it, but somebody over there criticized him, and I didn't like that. He's my president, whether I like him or not. And the same thing for the guy now. He is the president. What would you do if he walked in here right now? Would you tell him what you think? All right, Lester, be good. I know what you're thinking because I know what I'm thinking. It's easy to know what you're thinking. I just get up and look in the mirror. Now, I'd have to be respectful. I'd have to be polite. I owe him that. It's part of my Christian obligation and part of my Christian testimony. I don't owe, I don't owe him obedience in those things that he re would require of me that would cause me to disobey God. And in that respect, I don't have a lot of time for this, but I'll tell you a story that's probably seven or so years old, but I'm thinking maybe some of you might remember it. See, this was back seven, eight years ago. This was back when, uh, when this kind of thing really got your attention. Now, unfortunately, we've become kind of adjusted to it and used to it, which is maybe too bad. But seven or eight years ago in Kentucky, there was a woman by the name of Kim Davis. This thing made national news at the time. A federal court said that she was a, by, in Kentucky, she was a county clerk, and of course, she was required to issue marriage licenses. A federal court told her she had to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, she says, can't do. It made national headlines at the time. She was vilified, just like you would be vilified in the press today if, if that was your position, but she had Christian scruples. And... So it doesn't mean also that we can't speak up, whether by right living or words. I think that's what Kim Davis was attempting to do. And we are remembered of our mission in this world, right? We're all reminded about this. There's two things Christ used in the Sermon on the Mount. We're salt and we're light. And what does he say about the salt if it loses its savor? It is thenceforth what? You remember? Good for nothing. So when I preach on that in the Sermon on the Mount, that's the title of my sermon, Good for Nothing Christians. You can't do much with salt once it's lost its savor. Throw it out. So it doesn't give us that liberty either, and it, it doesn't mean we can't speak up. We are citizens. Aren't you glad? I mean, we are still in America where these people can go to the school board and, and, and register their opinions. That is, if you don't get put on some federal watch list for it. But you can. And we still have those rights, and we still are citizens, and I'm grateful for that because, you know what, there are places in the world where you couldn't think of doing anything like that. So it's still the best place to be, I think. And last of all, I'm going to leave myself a couple minutes for the end of this, but it doesn't mean you can abuse your freedom in Christ. You know, that's a hot topic sometimes with Christians about, well, I'm free in Christ, I have, I have liberty. All right, so I just want to ask you to think about it this way. Everyone who kind of majors on that seems to forget that there's two sides to this street. This is a coin with two sides. You're free from something, and you're free to something. It's not just the free from. It's the free to. And he has that in this verse. We're free from... Yes, I mean, we're, we're free from the flesh in the sense of being governed by it. We're free from legal requirements in order to be saved, which is what legalism really is, although we use the word differently, I think, now. But we're not free just to do as we please. 
Are we? No, he says in the verse, but as servants of God. So this is the delight of being a Christian, that you've been set free from the inability to please God and given the ability to please God and the obligation. So we have to move on. Um, Here are a couple verses. So what did Paul say about it? Well, to those outside the law, he says, I became as one outside the law. In other words, the ceremonial parts of the Jewish law, they were passing away. But he says, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law Gentiles who didn't grow up under that system. But Jude really puts his foot down on this whole idea of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. All right, lastly, what does it mean? We only have two thoughts here. But let's remember that we do this first and foremost for God. It does say for the Lord's sake in verse 13. This is our real motivation. So you have to get past the petty tyrants. You have to get past the tin horn dictators. Talk about so much you could say. Anyway, you have to get past that. Keep your eyes on the Lord. We're, we're serving him. Paul puts it this way. Whatever you, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3.23. We do this because our testimony is important. Back up in verse 9, we saw this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You can't proclaim those things if you don't live that way, if you don't live in the light. And so we're given that, we're given that obligation, that responsibility. Um, but at the same point, you know what? Peter doesn't mince words. He puts out there sort of what I've hinted at here this morning, a pretty unflattering description of some people you run up against in this world. He says that you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, in the original, it's kind of interesting. So people laugh about preachers who like alliteration, but this is three words that start with A, what Peter has here in the original. First of all, he says the ignorance, that's agnosia, that's kind of a strong word because it means they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. The, the A in the front negates the word and gnosis is knowledge. So what's it really saying? They don't know what they're talking about. Well, how often do you, how often do you deal with people who criticize your Christianity and they don't have a ghost of an idea what they're talking about? It happens all the time. I remember one day our secretary was, I, I could walk to the office, I could tell she was a little bit, so what's the matter? Oh, she said, I just had somebody call on the phone and went on some rant about, we had a Christian school ministry, went on some rant about, you people just put your kids in Christian school to shelter them. No and yes. You might do well to shelter your kids from a few things that are out there too. These people know what they're talking about, but you have to suffer long. And then he says, well, foolish men or people is anthropos, so that's another word that starts with an A. And then 
foolish, offrone, no sense. They, they say things that are just stupid, just senseless. Don't they? Just, just turn the TV on. So I'm going to leave you a little story because uh, I love this. How do you handle these people? Sometimes it takes a lot of wisdom. So do you remember when, uh, maybe you've heard this. Okay, so I shouldn't say you remember when because we weren't there. I wasn't either. I should clarify. But Spurgeon's early days, he was 18 years old, started his ministry in a little place five miles from Cambridge called Water Beach. Read the story, Water Beach, when, when an 18-year-old Charles Spurgeon went there and started to preach, the little chapel there, the Water Beach Chapel, that, that, that place was known for drunkenness, known for debauchery, and Spurgeon was warned. Now, you're 18 years old. Think how you would do. You know, you, that's not very old. That's still plenty of time to pop off at the mouth. And he was warned about this particular woman that, that lived in Water Beach. And she, oh, the, the, the British term was virago. I had to look that up. But it basically means an ill-tempered woman, loud and outspoken. And I'm not picking on women. I'm just saying this was the case here. And Spurgeon was told, she's got a mouth. So sure enough, he passed by her house one day. He said people had told him, warned him, that, that he's likely to get an earful from this woman. So he went by, and he was walking. She was there. And uh, she yelled out at him, and it was just a, you know, a barrage. And he looked at her and smiled, and he said, yes, thank you. I'm quite well. I hope you are the same. And that didn't phase her. She let loose another barrage. And pitch changed a little bit and went up. And Spurgeon said, yes, it does look rather as if it is going to rain. I think I had better be getting on. And after a moment, the woman said, bless the man, he's deaf as a post. What's the use of storming at him? Spurgeon commented later, he said, I don't know whether this woman ever came to the chapel or not, but he was careful to maintain his testimony, and their souls are worth it, and that's the thing we have to remember. Their souls are important. So if you blast them, remember it may be difficult to have a testimony and a witness with them. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the day and what we can now look forward to, but for those things that we've heard that have been helpful, that were from you, help us to store those things up in our hearts and minds to be able to use them because we'll certainly get a chance. And I pray, Father, that you would just uh, blow away as chaff anything that wasn't from you today. In Jesus' name, amen.